uh, we're going to go into the text. And uh, just before we go into it, before we go into John 17, um, to kind of put a frame around what we're talking about, we're concluding our time in the high priestly prayer this week. And Jesus knows that at this point he has very little time before he's arrested and killed. And in his final hours, what does Jesus pray for? He prays primarily for two things. He prays for that he would be glorified so that he would glorify the Father. And he prays for his people. And these last hours, they reveal to us what Jesus most cares about, what his priorities are. And that is that God would be glorified and that his people would reflect the glory of God. And as we've gone through this prayer in John 17, we've seen that Jesus desires for his life and death to glorify and reveal who God is. And two weeks ago, we talked about the prayer for uh, the mission of his disciples. And yet last, last Sunday, John spoke on sanctification. Um, Jesus is praying that his followers would be made like him so that they could glorify him. And today we look at the unity among believers that Jesus prays for. So we're going to read the word of God today. This is from John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. And you can follow along if you're online, our bulletin, or look on your real Bibles or your phone. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of God. And here, Jesus, he is praying that we would be one. Now, what comes to mind when you think of, of people becoming one? If you've gone to a wedding, you've witnessed two people becoming one person, when we watch or participate in marches or protests, we're seeing many, many people moving together as one crowd with one purpose in mind. If you've been to a big concert, there may have been a moment where everyone in the, in the stadium or in the concert hall, they're singing the same song. And if you've ever been a part of that, you know just how electric it is to hear all these voices singing the same thing. And... What is the motto of the United States? It's e pluribus unum, which is Latin for out of many, one. And we love this idea of becoming one. We love the idea of either two people or 10,000 people or 300 million people becoming one. And there's such power in this image of multiple, multiple, many, many people coming together and forming one single unit but what does that really mean, to be one? And for us as a church, specifically, what does it mean for IGC in 2020? 
the pandemic has separated the members of our church physically. The opinions about what is safe and what isn't and what our church does with that information is all across the board. We've heard it. The protests back in June have forced us to have difficult conversations about race relations, and sometimes these can be tense conversations. And, of course, this is an election year, and it's so tempting to see our brothers and sisters through a political lens. Are they red or are they blue? And on top of those things, our members are all over the place socioeconomically and culturally and perhaps even in some ways theologically. And Jesus says, Father, would you make your people one? What do we do with this prayer? So as we look at the text today, I want us to see how we can have it and why unity is so important. So I have three points this morning. Uh, Number one, unity as a reflection of the Godhead. Number two, unity as a witness to the world. And number three, unity as a gift to us. Our first point, uh, unity is a reflection of the Godhead. Uh, Four or five years ago, there was a viral video of a target manager giving a pep talk to his employees, to to, to his employees right before the doors opened on Black Friday. And uh, it's kind of a humorous video, but this is what he said. He's, he's standing on top of, I think, uh, shopping carts or boxes, and he's just saying this out loud to his employees. People of Target, brothers, sisters, hear me now. There is standing out there at any moment now, those doors will be breached. They're standing out there at any moment now, those doors will be breached. Whatever comes through those gates, you will stand your ground with a smile on your face. They come here with bargains in their heads and fire in their eyes, and we shall give those bargains to them. We will show them that we are not just the best store in the neighborhood, but the store anywhere, the best store anywhere, because we are more than just a store. This is a team. This is a family. This is Target. Such passion and such a beautiful vision of these target employees banding together to give people bargains that they were hoping for. And there is an important principle here that that a group of people, they may be individually different, but they can come together and be united for a singular purpose. And this is a good principle for us to remember as well, for us as a church. Every member of this church should be united by a common mission, which is to follow Jesus and to help others follow Jesus. This is the vision of IGC. So I could talk about that. I could talk about how this morning, how how working as a team to be disciples and make disciples, how we would achieve so much more and how this would be uh, such a beautiful image for our community if we were banded together We would be more focused as an organization, and perhaps even our relational bonds would be stronger. And all these things are true, and we will say these things continually as we go on as a church. But let me put this before you. Having a common vision or mission is not the most important principle of unity. If it were, then we'd be using the same metrics as targets to gauge our organizational unity or our success. A shared vision is not the most important principle of church unity. It's not the main thing that brings us together. And Jesus says so. Look at verses 20 through 23. 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 
Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. And verse 23, I in them and you and me, that they may be become perfectly one. It is not a common vision that brings us together. The foundation of our unity is the relationship in the Trinity. In other words, we can be one because the Father and Son are one. And our oneness is a reflection of what is true about the Father and the Son. Our oneness is a reflection of what is true about the Father and Son. So so what would a church look like that reflected the Trinity? What, what would we look like? Um, if, if you've ever thought about church, I know that if you're a part of this church, you've thought about what you would like to see in a church. Um, but have you ever created a dream church in your head? Have you ever thought about who you would want to be in a church with? I have. And let me share with you what this hypothetical church looks like. First off, everyone in the church would agree with my theology. That would save me a lot of time because it would mean that I wouldn't have to convince people of what I believe. And then everyone would be interested in the same things as me. The literature I read or the music that I listen to, the places that I like to visit, the food that I like to eat, the things I find humorous. And that way, if everyone in the church is like that, it'd be so easy to make conversation with them and have a good time with them. And I'd also want everyone in the church to see the world the same way that I do. That would mean that perhaps their MBTI type or their Enneagram type would be the same as mine. Um, Because if that were the case, I wouldn't have to explain myself. And I would definitely, definitely want everyone to agree with me politically. Because few things are as aggravating as being around people who vote differently than I do. And if this were the type of church that I were in, I think that it would be pretty easy to achieve unity if the church looked like that. And that is what I want in a church. But this is not what God wants in a church. In fact, God would be disgusted by my hypothetical perfect church. This type of church would be a complete dishonor to him. Because this doesn't reflect who he is. Because in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is unity, but there is not sameness. The Father and Son, they are distinct, yet they have the same desires to redeem the people of God, to renew creation, to bring honor to each other. In his commentary on this passage, D.A. Carson points out that what we have in the Godhead is a shared unity in purpose, action, and love. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are separate, and yet they are one. In the Trinity, there is a love for each other. There is a deference. There is a delight in the other person, in the other persons of the Godhead. And when we are one, we're actually participating in the oneness of the Father and the Son. Look at verse 21 with me again. Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Because we believe Christ we are united with him. This is this this beautiful doctrine of union with Christ, which is I in Christ and Christ in me. And this is the hope of glory. This is my hope of glory, that I am in Christ and that Christ is in me. And if I am in Christ, then it means that I am a part of what is happening between the Father and the Son. We are in them. 
the hymn we sing sometimes, which is the church's one foundation, it contains the line, these lines. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. These lines are referring to this passage here in John 17. We are united with God the three in one. And because we're united with God, there is this mystical sweet communion with others who are also united with God. And that means that any unity that we have is rooted in the character of God. Any unity that we have as a church is rooted in the character of God. And here's why. All the things that we identify with are ultimately temporary. So think of all the things that that you use to identify yourself. Our ethnicity, our political party, our denomination, the zip codes that we live in, all these things at, at, at the very best are secondary to who we are. And even our vision as a church is temporary. Our vision is to follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus. In other words, this is, uh, we're trying to obey the command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations. But did you know that there will one day come a day when there will be no more disciples to make? Which means that even our vision as a church is temporary. But the relational oneness in the Godhead is eternal. It's existed before time began. It will continue for all eternity. It's at the center of all reality. And therefore, if we want unity in our church, then we need to know this God. More than we need to know this cultural moment, more than we need proper analysis of ideologies, more than we need an organizational savvy or visionary leaders, we need to know God as a person. Because our relationship to each other is contingent on our relationship with the relational Godhead. Our relationship to each other is contingent on our relationship with the relational Godhead. And if we are able to do that, if we're able to relate to God in that way, our values and actions as a church can stem from that relationship. That means that what we do at IGC is not just preach ideas. We don't just present facts for us to study and analyze. We worship a living person, not an impersonal being. The gospel we preach is the news of a God who rescues and redeems his people so that they could have their relationship with him restored. When we engage with our fellow church members, we're not just passing along information to them. We're not not just trying to convince them of a set of ideas. We're developing and maintaining and growing our relationships with each other and pointing each other to this living God that we worship. So our unity as a church is a reflection of the Godhead. This is our first point, our second point. Unity as a witness to the world. So our unity is beautiful if we can achieve it in the church but our unity is not just for the church but it's for the sake of the world now if you wanted the world to know God how would you do it as a church what would we do if we wanted people to believe our message how would we achieve that we could perhaps have an amazing band with the best production value Or maybe we could teach our members apologetics, every one of them. We could have a 12-week course on how to defend your faith and how to uh, critique other worldviews and how to answer objections. 
Or maybe we'll have really attractive people on our marketing materials. Or maybe we'd have charismatic leaders. Or maybe our pastors would quote articles from The Atlantic or anecdotes from NPR. Or we might reference the most relevant musicians and movies. This perhaps is what we would do if we wanted the world to be drawn to this message that we have. If we we wanted people to believe what we believe. And again, this is where the wisdom of God confounds the wisdom of man. According to Jesus, the way that we make the case for truth, for the truth of our message, is the unity of the church. Look at verse 23 again with me. That they may be one, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. How is the world going to know this God that we worship? Jesus says, when they become perfectly one. The way that God makes his glory known to the East Bay and to our friends and neighbors is by our oneness with each other. And we'll fail as a church if we're divided. IGC will dishonor God if we're not one, or at least moving toward becoming one. This is how God is going to make himself known to Castro Valley and the East Bay and beyond. Now, that that doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements and we don't have difficult conversations, but it does mean that we never let our preferences or our politics or pandemics override our identity as followers of Jesus. And and this isn't just a matter of ideological differences. Um, We're going to have that in the church, but it's a matter of whether or not we'll reach out and connect with other members of our church. So to that list of things that start with the letter P, I kind of planned that. Let me add one more P, proximity or the lack of proximity. We cannot let preferences or politics or pandemics or the lack of proximity divide us. We can't let that happen because Jesus says, I want the world to know me and the way the world is going to know me is if there is unity in the church and amongst believers. Back in May, we celebrated our 10-year anniversary and um, in our 10 years as a church, we have never been more divided than we are right now and we've never needed unity more than we need it now. We need to move toward each other and we need to be extra gracious toward each other and we need to do it in a way that encourages each other to love Christ and his church more. This is what we need. If you're a member of IGC, let me remind you of a vow that you made when you became a member of this church. You made a vow to study the purity and peace of the church And that means that you are responsible for the unity of the church. You are responsible for the unity of the church. It's your duty to lay down your preferences and your love of comfort for the good of the community. And this is so hard. This is so hard. It's so difficult for me. But it is our duty. We made a promise to care for the church, to study its peace and purity. If you have a problem with people in the church, you don't just 
speak about them and and grumble about them. Um, you would look at Matthew 18, and there should be some way, some attempt at reconciliation. If you're upset upset about things happening in the church, um, which is completely fine, I'm upset about things that happen in the church all the time. If you're upset about things that happen in the church, don't just air your grievances without rolling up your sleeves and doing something about it in a way that builds up the church. If you're not making time to connect with others in the church, then do it. Because there are so many people who are without regular and meaningful connection in the church. So many of our brothers and sisters feel alone right now. Many of us have not seen each other's faces since March. And some of us were were shriveling up because there's no meaningful interaction with people who will help us in our walk with Jesus. And the leaders of the church, we're trying to do what we can. Uh, We're trying to reach out to people. But there's just simply no way that we can develop a tight web of relationships on our own. And we need you to remember your vows. We need you to remember and care for each other. I I wonder what our church will look like after the pandemic. Will we be limping because the members were neglected by fellow members? Or will we become stronger because we use this time as an opportunity to care for each other? I honestly don't know. I don't, however long the pandemic lasts, I don't know what it's going to look like. But we have to work toward unity. We have to live out what Jesus is praying for in this prayer. One of the most notable movements in recent memory was the Occupy Wall Street movement. And this was a large group of people that that they wanted to address the socioeconomic inequities that they saw in society. And very quickly, this this movement gained steam and it garnered a lot of uh, media attention. But within several months, the messaging and potency of the movement began to wane. This was a whole lot of noise was made. A whole lot of people joined in. They they, they camped out in front of in, uh, financial institutions. Um, but within several months, the messaging and and the potency of their of the movement began to lessen and wane. And commentators they 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 noted that the movement lost momentum because it soon became about more than what was happening on Wall Street. People, they came in with their own agendas and they co-opted the Occupy brand. And there still are remnants of the Occupy movement today, but for the most part, it's effectively gone. And this is not a critique of the movement. This is just an organizational observation. That the amount of impact any organization or movement will have is dependent on the clarity of the message and the unity of its members the clarity of the message and the move, and the unity of its members. What do we have as a church? We have the gospel message and we have a supernatural unity. And that unity is grounded on the unshakable character of God, the character of God which never changes. We're told in the scriptures, in him there is no shadow of turning. Christ is our solid foundation and we can plant our feet on him. When we reflect the unity, we show something to the world that it won't see anywhere else. 
And we can have a unity that can't be achieved by worldly means. And this is why Christianity has, has been able to transcend culture and ethnicity and politics and personality types around the world for more than 2,000 years. The gospel message has transcended all these things. And by the grace of God, it can transcend the differences of the 124 members and 34 covenant children on our member role and the distance between them. This is what Jesus makes possible. And this brings us to our final point. Unity as a gift from the Son. Look at verses 24 and 26. I'm going to jump around uh, these two verses. Jesus says, Father, I desire... That they may be one, that they may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Unity is necessary, and unity is beautiful, even if it is a painful beauty. But unity is not the ultimate gift that we have. In verse 24, Jesus tells us what that ultimate gift is, that we would see his glory, that we would see his glory. The best thing that we have is the ability to love and enjoy and revel in and and point to the glory of Christ. And that's only possible if we know the love with which he has been loved. Verse 26, Jesus talks about the love that the Father has for the Son. And if you look at it closely, there's something remarkable that Jesus says in this in this verse. Jesus wants us to be loved with the same love that the Father loves him. And we have that love through the gospel. The gospel is that we've all tried to live life apart from God. We've tried to create meaning for ourselves apart from the only true creator. But there is no life, there is no meaning apart from him. And the consequences of our attempts to create life and meaning our futility and death. But the Father sent the Son to live the life that we could not live and die the death that we deserved. And all the anger and the wrath of God was that we had earned for ourselves was poured out on Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus traded places with us. He took on the identity of the sinner and the stranger so that we could have the identity of the righteous and the beloved This is what is true about you, more than anything that you identify yourself with, more than politics, more than your your opinion on what's happening in the news, more than your ethnicity or culture or your hobbies. What is most true about you is that you are righteous and that you are loved. And if we would repent of our attempts to make our own lives and believe in Jesus, we'll have the love of the Father. I hope we can understand this, that God the Father loves us as deeply and as fully and as wholly as he loves Jesus the Son, whom he's been in relationship with for all eternity. We can be loved just as much as that. And if we find our identity in that, then we can be one one with our brothers and sisters who also find their identity in that. Now, what will we do with this prayer? IGC. Do we love the unity of the church? It's interesting that Jesus here, he doesn't pray for protection for the church. 
he doesn't pray that we would be able to figure all the questions out surrounding theology or the nature of reality. What does Jesus care about? He cares about our unity. And what will we do with this desire that Jesus has? What will we do with the truth that we are loved and that we can be one? And I hope that we'll move toward each other in living out the oneness that Christ bought for us. Will you pray with me? Father, I we're, we're humbled that um, you can make one out of many. I think of all the faces that uh, we haven't seen in months now, and sometimes we wonder, are they even part of the church anymore? Do they even care? Uh, God, I, pr- I pray that you would do something about that. I pray that you would raise up your people, that they would do something with this truth, this prayer of Jesus, that we would be one, that we would be united, God. So we ask for unity in the church. We need it now more than ever, God. Uh, would you do this for your bride? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.